everybody welcome to a special sessions with jay cal of course with me we've been talking about it on twitter we talked about it on facebook this is tommy wilson uh man you have such an amazing story and I, I can't wait to get to it but uh socal pro champion ewf champion uh been around for a long time working with upw the nwa pro wrestling when they were out here in southern california and in just a lot of different places, I, I like to talk about all that fun stuff in just a few minutes. But Tommy, welcome to the show, man. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? I'm good, man. It's it's uh, it, you know, it's wild. Like uh, you are somebody who I've known about for as long as I've been really like watching indie wrestling. And, How long have you been watching? Okay, so my first real indie show was with Rick Bassman at UPW when they brought the Hardys in. And I think that okay. was like, I think that was 2000, maybe 99. And, okay. uh, it was, it was new to me. Um, and I don't think you were quite there yet, but you were, you were there, uh, shortly after that. How about yeah, you? I, start- I was gonna say, I started in 01, March 01 with Ken Shamrock at his lion's den. Right, And they had it in Chula Vista, which is pretty close to Mexico down in San Diego. And uh, they had a fighting school. And I originally went there to do that. And then I got punched a couple times by Vernon White, <laughs> who's an MMA fighter. I was like, I don't really like this. <laughs> but they also had a wrestling school that just started. It was ran by a guy named Oliver John. So I was I got really lucky on the timing that I was actually able to be trained by Oliver John at Ken Shamrock School. And I got about 10 months of training with him exclusively. Uh, before the place shut down. And that's when I went up to UPW because he'd done a program with Tom Howard at that point where they were going to do Tom Howard from New, or, uh, from Zero One and then Oliver John from the Lion's Den. And they were going to do this big thing that ultimately never ended up happening. But Oliver had got in on, the, on that with Bassman. So Bassman knew of all of us, all the students that came out of school right from the start. And I got really lucky that I showed up and he just took me right in. And that's where I was able to train with Samoa Joe, Frankie Kazarian, the Ballards, Hardcore Kid, Brian Kendrick, like just this ridiculous amount of knowledge that came out of that place. Um, so I, I got really lucky. And yeah, I was at UPW about 2002 on till the end. It, it, it's insane when you think about it, because I mean, I like, look, take the professionalism out of it as a fan of the, of the sport, in which I, I still believe you are a fan. Oh, look yeah. at all those guys that came out of UPW. Not necessarily like the stars, like some, you know, like Samoa Joe, but like, you, you know, besides the, John Cena, there was guys like Heidenreich. There was guys like Nathan Jones, right? Um, yeah, Cage's Coda for sure. Yeah, he had a very short run. You know, Hardcore Kid got his run as Jesus working against Cena. And people forget, like, this is why I love Rick Bassman more than anything. He's the one who found the Ultimate Warrior, which is my favorite wrestler of all time. Like, See, there I know you that's go. Fun. I know that's nothing most wrestlers admit to of their inspiration is the ultimate warrior, but that's the dude I grew up on. I mean, I, I was at, well, I wasn't there, but I was sitting at home at WrestleMania six wearing my airbrushed ultimate warrior t-shirt that my mom got made for me. And in a house, a house divided, I was the only one there rooting for the ultimate warrior. Everyone else was cheering for Hulk Hogan. 
And I sat there, I think I was like 12 years old, maybe 11. I was like, no, Warrior's going to win. And he did. And of course, I got to rub it in everyone's face. Yeah, see, I remember finding out like a week or two later on Superstars because we didn't have the pay-per-views and I didn't know anybody else that was wrestling fans. Like I was all alone in my family on that. I got lucky if I could watch a Superstars or a Saturday Night's main event or something. So I was all alone. And so like I turned on Superstars and they had that new intro with the Ultimate Warrior with like the laser stuff coming out of his eyes. I'm like, (laughs) what? He won? I was so pumped about that. Um, and that was the kind of wrestler I always wanted to be, which is funny because I never even got close to anything being like the ultimate warrior, but I, I loved warrior and I loved demolition as like, you know, two the guys growing up. Right. Right. And I always wanted face paint and I always wanted to be like that big Jack, like giant, but I just never got there. I mean, I was 170 pounds when I started wrestling. Yeah. Six five. So yeah, like, yeah. one of the funniest things that I wish we had video of this is uh, Shamrock had a display case with all of his title belts. So he has UFC titles, all the, I forget what they were called. Um, super fight championships. And yeah. then he had the intercontinental title and he had um, the tag team title. So I don't know, a couple of weeks into training, he's like, Hey guys, you know, want to try the belts on and just, you know, see what they feel like. And I grabbed the intercontinental title and I put it on and I put the straps all the way, the tightest it could get. And you could literally slide it from my chest down to my feet. <laughs> and it, I wouldn't have been able to wear it. And sure. that's when he goes, you know, kid, you need to get on some stuff and get a little bit bigger. <laughs> Cause you know, back in those days, that was the thing they told everybody is just get as big as you can. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's talk real quick because we jumped right into training which is awesome because you know some people didn't know i didn't know that oliver john was uh the man responsible for the actual wrestling side of the lion's den so that's that's new information for me but how how did young tommy become hey i want to become a pro wrestler this is what i'm going to do with my life like what was that transition and and how supportive was the family about that there was no transition i wanted to be a pro wrestler from the first time i saw wrestling wow okay the first match I remember, and I've been able to figure it out actually with the WWE Network now, which match it actually was. My brothers had rented a wrestling tape when I was maybe like four or five years old. Okay. And I remember a cage match, and I remember Andre, and I remember him wrestling a big black guy. And I've been able to figure it out because the, they've got the best of the steel cage from like 1985 on the network now, or Peacock, whatever it is. And it's Andre and Kamala from the Maple Leaf Gardens in a cage. I'm like, I'm fairly certain that's the first match I ever saw in that VHS. And then the next memory I have is we rented No Holds Barred, and I thought that was cool. And then we started renting all the VHSs, uh, 89 Rumble and WrestleMania 5. So I was six, seven years old when I was like, I'm going to do that someday. I'm going to be the ultimate warrior. I'm going to be like Hulk Hogan. And, you know, like every guy does. And obviously, I never even got close to that as far as the size and the character type thing, because I've always used my real name other than when I did the Mega King thing. But even then, I still was calling myself Thomas Wilson or whatever. Right. I never, really, I never really got to be the wrestler I wanted to be, but it's just kind of the way it worked out. Because when I started the Lions Den, Oliver John was like, your name's Tommy Wilson. You look like, he's like, you're apple pie Tommy Wilson. And I was the <laughs> ultimate baby face there because all the other guys were big athletes and they just beat me up at all the shows that we did. So that's why that kind of went the way it did. But I knew I wanted to be a wrestler from the time I was a kid. It was just a matter of figuring out how. And in high school, I did wrestling. My senior year, I did uh, the dive team because I had nothing to do after wrestling season ended. And I figured why not get comfortable being in a speedo and jumping on a diving board. And then freshman year of college, I went to community college and I took a gymnastics class. And that's actually where I learned how to do back handsprings and all the other flippy stuff that I do when I was a little smaller. And I met a guy there who was actually doing MMA training at the Lions Den. He recommended I come down there. And my plan at that point was to go to the power plant because that was maybe mid 2000. Yeah. Yeah. 
WCW was still open. I was like, man, I'll, I'll do some MMA stuff with Shamrock, try to see if I can get a little reputation, get some stuff, have Shamrock recommend me to, to uh, the power plant, go out there and do that. And that was the plan. Ultimately, I think it worked out a lot better because with him having the wrestling school there, I mean, it worked out great that it's Ken Shamrock's name attached to it. And then WCW went out of business like a week after I started training. Like I wow. like to joke with, I was joking with our trainees last week at Silk Up Pro Wrestling School. Of like, I broke into the wrestling business on March 15th, 2001. There's three major wrestling companies at that point. You had WWF, WCW, ECW. Now, ECW was on the way out, but sure. I wasn't following the dirt sheet. So, I mean, I ordered the guiltiest charge pay-per-view in January. I was like, they're going to have something soon. They'll be back. <laughs> and then within like two weeks, Vince is on Nitro buying everything. And Oliver John's telling me as a fan, at someone's like, this is great. Everything's going to be WWF. This is so cool. He's telling me, he's like, no, this is terrible, which I learned later on as you get into the business of wrestling of less places to work, less jobs for wrestlers. And I've always kind of felt like I've always been wrong place, wrong time on stuff like that. Of like, I got to UPW and it was cool, but I never had the right size. You know, I was never one of the big, I mean, I'll just flat out say it. I was never one of the big steroid guys. So I was, I, you know, you'd see Bassman backstage at a raw with like 20 just bodybuilders. I mean, I was there when Nathan Jones came through Yeah, and it's, you know, Rick and all these guys. And I was never one of those. I ended up falling in with like little Nate and Andrew Hellman and Joey Ryan and Scott lost and all the workers and that's how me and uh, Johnny Goodtime got booked for Raw is Johnny Ace went up to Rick and was like, I need the two guys that can sell the best for Umaga. And he's like, these two. And I was like, <laughs> it felt great that he believed in us on that. And that match went over really well. We both ended up getting double paid that day. And we weren't even supposed to be booked for SmackDown the next day, but they brought us back for that. And that was kind of cool. So it, it was a nice little thing there, but ultimately See, it never worked out. As a, as a worker, though, like, I mean – there's so many guys that would love to get that opportunity to step into that WWE ring. And, and it's something that you got to do. Do you, do you hang your hat on that? Do you, do you take pride in that? Or is that just, that was just another payday? It was just another thing. I mean, that was 2006. That was a very long time ago. Like my career has been kind of start and stop a lot. Like early on, you know, I went through the lion's den, then UPW, I got booked in Japan for zero one pretty early on. And then I got booked on, you know, raw for that pretty quickly. So that's my first five years in. And then things kind of started stagnating after that. UPW went out of business, um, so I had nowhere to train. Yeah. I got married at that point, so I started settling down a little bit. Um, all the wrestling in San Diego kind of dried up because we used to have WCWA. They went under, and then before Jeff Dino came around with SoCal Pro, there was really nothing in San Diego. There was you know, some guys popping up doing stuff, but it was never good quality stuff that was going to last for a while. And when SoCal pro started, I actually was like, All right, another one's going to start up and be gone in a couple of months. And now we are, we are 15 years later. And it's kind of awesome that the school and, and the promotion were able to sustain it because San Diego was cursed for the longest time. Yeah, so, for sure. So at that point I actually got out of wrestling. It was funny though, is I was working, um, I was working in a food court at San Diego state when I wrestled that match on raw. And I remember going to work on the Wednesday after SmackDown and, you know, just working with everybody. And everybody's like, you're kind of depressed today. What's going on? I was like, I was on Raw two nights ago and now I'm selling euros and pizza to people. Like, this really sucks. <laughs> you know, having to go back to the real world. So it, it's something that I don't, I wouldn't say I hold my, hang my hat on that because it was so long ago. And sure. time, it was really cool because not a lot of guys got those opportunities. Now it's pretty easy to get booked on, you know, you have AEW Dark. WWE seems to be using guys a lot more on uh, main event. And when they had 205 Live, guys were getting booked on that, which was great. So it's a lot yeah. easier than it used to be. So it was cool at the time. And I am proud that I was able to get that at that time. But at the same time, 
I got it because Rick Bassman believed in me and that was it. I actually really didn't do anything. I just got a call and was like, hey, show up and be here. And that was that. But it's not something that I look back on with a ton of pride because it was just something that was kind of thrown in my lap and was cool. And I feel like myself and Johnny Goodtime capitalized on it at that moment, but we just weren't the right guys at the right time. And I mean, Johnny Ace flat out told us that night. He told me, he's like, you're just too small. And I don't know what he told uh, Goodtime, but I'm pretty sure it was, hey, kid, you're just too small. You're too short. With me, it was I didn't have the size, you know, to match my frame. You can't be 6'5", 220 NBA WWE Superstar right. in 2005, 2006, unfortunately. And then it's kind of funny because when I get out of the wrestling industry, you know, I was telling these guys last week, too you know, everything kind of went to shit after I started. And then once I get out of it, AEW's popping up, you know, so we got a real second option. Finally, WWE's changed their style a little bit where they seem to be a little bit more indie friendly, especially when NXT was in its original incarnation. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of felt like, man, I got out of the wrestling industry and then everything kind of got better. And now that I get back into it, all of a sudden everybody's getting injured. There's this Vince McMahon drama going on. I'm like, am I cursed? You know, <laughs> AEW goes out of business in the next year. I'm done wrestling. Because as a fan, I want as many options as possible. Yeah, man. Well, you you glossed over a couple of things there, and I think they're definitely worth talking about. Zero one, uh, you know, Japan has always been kind of looked at as like this. Uh, like, if you make it in Japan, if you get that opportunity to wrestle in Japan, you've you've done it, man. You've done the damn thing, and you got to go there early on in your career uh, as part of like that UPW kind of invasion. Rick Bassman was. Uh, a weird storyline where he and Hashimoto were going to square up at some point. And, yes. and in between tour, tours of Japan, Hashimoto was coming to UPW with the uh, NWA world's heavyweight championship, a title you'd actually challenge for down the road. But uh, at this time, I mean, it's, it's young Tommy. It's, it's, it's the two twenty six foot five Tommy uh, teaming with Tony Stradlin. And you guys were, uh, you were bestowed the UPW light heavyweight championships Tell me about that time in zero one and how crazy was that for you? Because again, you were only in the business for a few years. And now you're already in Japan and you're doing the damn thing. Tell me about that experience. Well, let's start off with it's a perfect example of always being ready. So I wasn't booked on that tour initially. Andrew Hellman was booked. He got injured. They sent somebody out here. I don't remember the names, but they sent somebody out here. He had a match with Hellman at one of the the it wasn't UPW light. It was like the Ballards took the light shows on the road at one point for a little while. I forget what they were called, but it was one of those Matt shows. Wars. Matt Wars, yeah. So it was one of those shows. Hellman got hurt. He wasn't going to be able to go. And from what I was told is that Rick called Joey Ryan first and said, Joey, do you have a passport? Do you want to go to Japan? And Joey's like, I don't have a passport. So Rick oh, called me right afterwards and says, do you have a passport? I did not have a passport, but I told him I did. And <laughs> I got home and I immediately went up to my dad and was like, hey, um, I'm going to Japan in five days. I need a passport. How do I make that happen? Wow. And my dad's like, don't worry, we'll figure it out. So we go online and we ended up figuring out that we could go up to LA and they can expedite it. And then we paid like 300 bucks extra or something. So the next day I drive up to LA, take the passport photo. And then three days later, I drive back up to go pick it up. And then two days after that, I drive back up to fly out to Japan. Meanwhile, working a full-time job the whole time. So I was going wow. up after my shifts were over and doing all that. Um, but so that's how I even got booked on it. I was just, I said I would get a passport and I made it happen and got really lucky on that. So I didn't really have a lot of time to think about anything. We just get over there and the Ballards actually screwed with me and Tony's head a little bit because they're like, oh, the reason we're not booked is because they need some guys that can just get beat up by the Japanese guys. They're like, so you're, you guys are all going out there just to get beat up. Because it was uh, myself, Tony Stradlin, uh, Makoa, Alcatraz, 
Oliver John was on that was super cool for me that the guy who trained me went on my first yeah. trip and with me and uh, a guy named Sabbath. And then of course, Rick Bassman was there. So when we're in the plane, we're like two hours out of Japan and we're filling out all the customs forms and Rick hands us these two belts and goes, so you guys won this like 300 team tournament in Rio de Janeiro. Like, <laughs> and, and we all just start laughing, obviously knowing what was being referenced there, but he gives us the belts and like, just go out there and just pretend you own the place. And that's what we did is we just showed up and we pretend like we owed the place. And so the first show that we were there, uh, Makoa went out first and he wrestled and he came back to the back and his eyes busted open and he's missing a tooth. Whoa. And we're like, oh man, the ballads are right. These guys are just going to beat us up. So Tony and I just went, nah, we're going to go beat them up first. So we ended up beating the hell out of these two kids who had no intention. Like we found out after the fact that Makoa just got, it was a botched spot. And we just were like in our heads. So we're wrestling these two kids and we were just laying in kicks and chops and we're like, bring it, like, come on. And we got super over on it, which is funny because I posted up some photos a few days ago that you commented on asking if it was Tony Stradlin. So him yeah. and I teamed that first night, but the match where all the photos got taken of, it was me and Makoa versus Otani and um, I don't remember the other guy's name. But Tony was in the main event that night because he got so over in the tag match where we just beat the hell out of these two guys. And Tony was a bit more muscular and a little bit more skilled than I was at the time. So they picked him and they're like, you're going to team with this other guy and we'll switch the tag match around. But Tony's going on last now because we want him in the main event. Wow. And then uh, that show at Coracon Hall, I go out there with McCoe and he's, I don't know, six months in and is one of the body guys. And he gets in the ring and we have this whole match planned and those guys didn't speak English or they, yeah, they didn't speak English. We didn't speak Japanese. So we're in the back. We're figuring everything out, trying to go, all right, you do this, you do that. He got super lost early on and Otani like stiffed him really hard in the back and then like pushed him over to me and was like, come on. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm about to get beat up now for real. So I get in there and do the same thing I did the night before and was like, I'm just going to own this. So I get in there and I start throwing some strikes and then Otani started loosening up on me a little bit. And then we started going from there. We had a really good, really good time. But at one point in the match, I took this crazy bump, but not, not crazy, but like Shawn Michaels, Hulk Hogan, 05 SummerSlam kind of a bump. Yeah, yeah. Johnny threw my head into the buckle. I did a backflip over the top rope, landed on the floor, did like three back rolls, and then did a backflip over the guardrail into the crowd, and then like turned around like Terry Funk would when he was a madman, and just started throwing wild punches at like fans around, like, get out of my way, like I'm so beat up. And the place erupted. And I didn't realize till I got to the back that they actually loved what I was doing at that point. And um, Otani started getting them to chant uh, Moyashi. So they're all going, Moyashi, Moyashi. We had no idea. None of us. Bassman was managing us. And we had no idea that they were actually chanting Bean Sprout in Japanese. Because Otani <laughs> was pissed at me on my cell. And so he called me a Bean Sprout. Yeah. That was the insult that he came up with. It actually caught on. And that's what actually got me booked. And to come back to Zero One was this whole Bean Sprout angle. And um, they gave me a belt where it's yes. two sprouts wrapped around each other. And it's this little toy belt. And it's funny because when uh, Bassman got me booked on that second tour, he goes, they're making a title for you. I was like, what? That's crazy. Like they're making this belt. And then when I get it, it's like cheaper than like the $14 WWE ripoffs you see at Toys R Us. That's... Like, oh my God, what do I do? But Kendrick was out there and I asked him like, so what do I do? He's like, just go out there and pretend you're Ric Flair and just, <laughs> think that it's the NWA World Title. I was like, all right, cool. I'll go out and do that. And it ended up going really well for me on that one. You you ought to have Jeff get that belt, like like uh, a legitimate copy of that belt for your collection, man. I, I don't think that hookups. You do? Oh, it, I kept it. 
I came home with it and then they stopped booking me after a while. So I just kept the belt. I've got, I have one half of the UPW light heavyweight tag titles and I have that bean sprout belt both hanging in my garage in my little home gym. Tommy, after this interview, man, you got to send me a photo of both of those. I I have to see those. Because I I, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, when I, I'm very familiar with your career because I've I've kind of been around SoCal and I've seen a lot of it, but I knew nothing about your zero one stuff until you posted that stuff. And when I went to cage match to look it up, it like they had a Bean Sprouts American Cup steel cage match where you won the title, you and Ricky Landell. Not yep. Mandel, but Ricky Landell. Ricky uh, Landell. Yeah. Don't not not to confuse the uh, viewing audience because Ricky Landell's an entirely different guy. Yeah, Rick Landell, mirror image. Yeah. yeah, Ricky Mandel is one of my best friends. Ricky Landell was actually Steve Carino's protege at the time. So yeah. it was actually pretty cool because Carino helped us put the match together. But what was unfortunate about that match is it was at a show called Rally of the Cages. So the entire show, it was like lockdown that TNA did. It was all cage matches the entire show. And we were either first or second on the card. And um, I forget who was in charge at the time, but whoever the promoter was came up and was like, so you guys can't use the cage at all. (laughs) And I went, and I went, okay, so the reason you guys brought me back was because of that stupid bump I took where I did all these backflips out of the ring into the floor and all that. I'm like, so I can't use the cage and the cage is going to keep me from leaving the ring to take that bump again to do anything like wild like that. So I, I got Carino to agree. He got them to agree that we could, uh, Landell could throw me into the cage face first and then I could do the backflip. So I did a thing where I, I go face first in the cage. I do a back roll, get on my feet, hit the back, hit my, the back of my head on the cage and I take a flare bump in the middle of the ring. So I was able to get that in and the place went nuts for that because that's what they wanted, but that's all we could do on that. And we only had like six minutes too. It's not like we got a lot of time to actually go work. Right. So if, if we were given 15 minutes and free reign to do whatever we wanted, I would have done something stupid off the top of the cage probably because as most wrestlers can tell you when you're the adrenaline's going and you have a big enough audience, especially early on in your career. Yeah. So yeah. Be, you know, 2,500 people there in that building, which is the biggest crowd I'd ever wrestled in front of at that point. I'd have fallen off the cage to the floor and been perfectly fine. You know, maybe get hospitalized afterwards, but sure, you know, when sure. your adrenaline's going, you know, the bumps don't matter. You know, if I had, you know, if I had to get up on the rope right behind me right now and do a moonsault, there's no way I'm doing it cold with nobody around. But right. You know, this place with two, 300 people going nuts 20 minutes into a match, I'll do it just because I know I can. And the muscle memory kicks in on stuff like that. Well, I mean, I remember seeing you do a, a I think it was a moonsault onto a Kid Karumba at yeah. one of the SoCal Pro shows into a, into a table. In fact, uh, I know that was a little bit older because the technology was was pretty crappy, and I had recorded yeah. it on my old phone then, and I put it up on Facebook then, which was probably like twelve years ago. If anyone were to go back and look at that footage now, it's super grainy and yeah. really like just terrible. But it's like that's Tommy. That's Tommy. You can tell that's Tommy. Well, what's funny about Kid Karamba is he's probably the best feud that I ever had ever in wrestling. Uh, you know, he was just one of our students and he's a guy that just kind of came and went with no real fanfare, which is unfortunate because he was a really good worker once he got going, but he was really popular with the fans right from the start. And, um, I wasn't even the, the reign where I was champion and lost the belt to him. I wasn't even supposed to be champion. Um, the original plan was for Chimera to be the champion, but then he went ahead and got himself a job for WWE, you know, being a ring announcer asshole but it worked out really well for me because he was scheduled to win the rumble that year and then it was like well who's gonna win it now and i just went why don't you just put the belt on me again like my first run got cut short because of a knee injury 
So I kind of had been wanting it anyway, but was kind of waiting my turn. And then the opportunity came up. So I wrestled Hector Canales and he had a torn pack and didn't quite put on the performance Cody Rhodes didn't help us out, but yeah. he still went out there, wrestled, and we worked around it the whole time. And that's actually one of those matches I'm really proud of too, because for 12 minutes, I wrestled a guy who couldn't throw a punch or a kick or anything, he was just in pain. And we were able to have a decent main event match and, you know, get the title switch and all that stuff. But then uh, Kid Karumba and Todd Chandler were the tag champs and Ricky Mandel was the Golden State champion. So we got booked in a match where it was me and Ricky versus them and all the titles, or no, sorry, tag titles were on the line. So Ricky and I were just going for the tag belts because we were trying to get everything. So we could be, you know, the four horsemen, but just the two of us. And Kid Karumba ended up pinning me in that match. And that was my decision because I wanted people to see that he could beat me and the place went nuts. Yeah. Like, title's not online. This is a perfect opportunity for me to lose. So I missed the moonsault. He hits me with a schoolboy. Match is done. And then he, and at that point, it was just like, whatever. And then over the summer, he ends up winning a tournament, becomes the first SoCal Pro Summer Classic, I think is what it was called. Yeah. Uh, champion. And then we had a match at the Rumble that year where we were able to use the fact that it was a Rumble show to get the time limit changed to 20 minutes as opposed to 60. So we did a 20 minute draw, and then he asked for five more minutes, and I gave it to him. So right. five more minutes and I just beat beat him down for five minutes straight and then got frustrated. So at the end of the five minutes, I asked for five more myself. And then I go for the super kick. He blocks it, does a reversal. He hits me with his finisher and he actually pins me for the title. But my hand had grabbed the apron and the referee realized afterwards. So he's holding the belt in the ring. Everybody thinks he won it. He's got the belt like this and he turns yeah. around. I kick him in the face and the belt just falls right on him and I cover him. And then after the three, I grab the belt out of his hand and just look at him and slap him in the face. And I'm like, <laughs> we need a third match. That can't be the last time we do that. And then we went on to the next one where he ended up beating me for the title. And then the one that you're talking about with the moonsault through the table, we did a TLC match a few months after that where I won it back. And yeah. but that whole program was something that I really enjoyed where I felt like him and I together, it just organically happened because the original him beating me was just to give him a push. There was no intent to ever have another match after that, but he just kept getting over and getting over slowly. We were like, man, this guy is. There, at, the at the time, like, and I, I don't ask, I'm not asking you to comment on other wrestling promotions, but at Mach 1 Wrestling, there was Nick Madrid and SoCal yeah. Pro, there was Kid Caramba. And I felt like it was that same dynamic where, the fans just really got behind those guys. And I don't really know why. Like, I'm not trying to disparage those guys. They, yeah. were, they just had that natural connection with the audience. And as soon as they came out, the fans went apeshit for them. And it was it was cool to see that. And i seen it organically in Mach 1, coming down to, to Oceanside and then seeing that in SoCal Pro. It's like, wow, that's pretty dynamic. There's two guys right now who are relatively new to the game, but just have that, that connection with the audience. And it, it it was pretty interesting to see that unfold. Well, with Madrid, I can't really say what happened because I wasn't there for that. But yeah. I ended up working him a bunch of times after the fact. So I knew he was over by the time I was working him. Kid Karumba just started off with his family started showing up. So he brought, you know, his mom, his dad, his brother, et cetera. And they were going nuts for him. And then some of the fans just kind of caught on like, oh, well, they're cheering for him. So we'll cheer for him. So it was that at first. But I've seen that happen with plenty of guys where, you know, their family comes out to the first show, they get really over, some of the fans cheer for them, but then they're not really that good. And then <laughs> it falls apart pretty quickly. Sure. And with him, he was good enough and he tried hard enough. And he had like, I'd, this is going to sound crazy, but I'd compare him to John Cena a little bit in that he was so awkward and weird in the ring 
but he tried so hard that I, I think that's what actually got him. And I think that's why Cena got over so much in the end is people were like, you know, okay, he was never a great athlete from like, everything's going, he's not Zack Sabre Jr. You know, he's not going to do crazy things sure. or anything. But they understood that Cena was tough and Kikurum the same thing. He took some beatings over that summer where like, I beat him up, Adam Pierce beat him up. You know, Ricky was beating him up. Like he wasn't just having matches. He was getting beat down and then making these like a miracle comebacks. So people were getting behind him on that, but he carried the load on, you know, he carried his end of the bargain on everything that he did. You know, when he was champion, I think it was realized that he wasn't going to be a long-term solution as a babyface champion. Yeah. Uh, because we were going to need to bring people in to work for him. And that's why his title reign was so short, but for what it was that night, I mean, it was I, a I, I missed five years of SoCal pro. So I can't say like, it's the biggest pop in the history of the company, but it's the biggest pop that I've ever heard when he pinned me in the time that I've worked for this company. Uh, and I, I was there and that night. I was, it honestly, was I was there that night, and it was well, a huge reaction for sure. Well, and what I loved about it too, and this is one of those things that no one would have noticed unless you're going back and watching, which I highly doubt people were like going back and watching all the SoCal Pro shows, is when he beat me in the tag match the previous year, I missed a moonsault, he hit me with a schoolboy, and that's how he won. So in this match, I threw a twist on the moonsault, landed on my back, and then when I popped up, he actually gave me a double underhook backslide which I've never seen anybody do before, but we were working on it two weeks be before that at training where I was showing the guys the two ways you can go into um, a backslide. And I was like, you overhook the arms and you turn the guy and then you pull him down over you. This guy, Eddie Randall, who was part of Frosted Tip Warriors with um, Ryan Kidd for a little while, he did a double underhook on it and turned the guy and went down. I went, I looked over at Kid Chrome and went, that's how you're pinning me. <laughs> like that looks so tight. And he was able to get it in where there was no way I was kicking out. Because the yeah. way it's locked in, like, you really got to let the guy go to let him get out. And I was like, this is perfect. So we were able to take the moonsault and the um, the schoolboy and then turn that into a twisting moonsault with this tight backslide where he really – he beat me. I mean, I wasn't able to kick out at that point. So I was really proud of the way that we were able to tell that whole story. And then even me taking the belt back from him a couple months later, it, you know, as you were asking about – you know, what do I hang my head on with Rob? Like the Raw was cool, but I honestly, the proudest thing that I've ever done in my career is that Kid Karama program, just because it was 14 months of just him and I working and just, it happened so organically. And every match we had did exactly what it was supposed to do and got us to the next spot. And, it, and nobody gave us any direction. It was just him and I talking and doing everything. So that's honestly the thing I'm probably the most proud of in my entire wrestling career is the Kid Karama program that I had. And, uh, just that I was trying to pull it up as we were talking here because uh, I like to try to be on top of things, but uh, it's not coming up. Um, what are you looking for? I I just I was looking for some of the photos that I had from uh, from SoCal Pro back in those days, okay. and uh, that one right there, uh, that was yeah. the night you you would regain the title right there. Yeah, that was the rematch. I, I mean, yeah, I was actually those, funny. I was at those we were, good times. Yeah. We were talking about that actually yesterday, myself and Jeff Dino, because um, he's talking about getting new belts for SoCal Pro. And we were talking about all the different variations. And I told him the first belt he ever had is one of my favorite belts because it's got good thick leather, thick plating, like it's heavy and it just feels good. Yeah. And then that white belt, I like the white because once again, I'm a big warrior fan. So I was like, when I win the belt back, you're like, what do you think about getting a new one? He's like, yeah, I think we need a new one because the old ones get beat up. It's like, you should make it white. And he agreed to it. But the leather wasn't as good. The metal wasn't as thick. 
and then we actually got a third belt made because Big Duke and I did a program where I forget how we got to it, but we were both champion at the same time. Yeah. Like he was disputing yeah. that I beat him and he'd kept the belt. And we were working towards a ladder match. And so we got a, a, another belt made. So we had the white and the black and the black one's the current belt that's being used by uh, Judas right now, but they're not quite as thick. So I was telling Jeff Dino yesterday, I'm like, man, you got to get better belts. You got to get them thick and they just look good. Like it just, it's just, they feel better. Like the EWF belts are some of my favorite too. Um, the heavyweight belt, I mean, they've had that thing for 20 something years and the leather's just worn down, but it's good leather. It's good plating. Like it's chipped and stuff, but it's still just a good looking belt. And like, it means, I, I well, think it means a lot to the to when they have a good quality belt that they're wearing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, so yeah, you just kind of broke down a lot of what was happening in SoCal pro in your time there. What the mega King, the Yankees have, but you're a Boston fan. What's going on there? I, I never got, uh, I never understood that one. Okay. So the mega King, mega King never wore the Yankee hat. What happened was I did a tryout with WWE in 2009. Okay. And um, it, it was one of the ones where you had to pay to go out to Florida and do it. And uh, Jinder Mahal is the guy that got hired from that one. Wow. Um, so I went out there, I'd blown my knee out like a month before it happened and Shit. so I was already kind of screwed going in. And then I broke my ankle like day two doing an up and over. So it was just kind of a cursed trip for me. But Steve Kern really liked me. So he spent a lot of time talking to me about stuff. And he was like, you know, you're just a very bland character. He's like, you're just Tommy Wilson. What is that? And I was like, I don't know. It's just, I don't have an idea of what I am yet. And so we were just talking about that. He's like, you know, upgrade your gear, do this, do that. So I was like, okay. So I started, I was already starting to think about that. So EWF held they have a tournament every year um, in the empire cup, I think is what it's called. Yeah. So I won that. They gave me the giant trophy and then I declared myself the king of the inland empire. And then the next show I referred myself as the king again. And then I was like, Mr. Megastar. I'd come up with the Mr. Megastar gimmick because I was like, I need something to go along with Tommy Wilson. So I was doing that. And I was like, Mr. Megastar, I'm the king. I was like, macho man macho king mega king and that's how that came about so as mega king i always wore the crown with the suit and all that stuff um as mr megastars when i started wearing the yankee hat and the way all this came about is the okay so the night that i beat hector canales when he had the um the torn pack torn pack yeah that was a a year after I had that W tryout and I'd done Ron Smackdown a bunch of times. So I bought a bunch of suits because you were required to wear the suits to go backstage back then. So I had like four suits and I think I was working at pizza hut or Domino. I forget where I was working, but I was, was working a fast food job at the time. So I had nowhere to wear a suit. It's not like I was going into an off training. <laughs> I started wearing it in my promos. Cause like, I need to give these suits some use outside of just working, you know, for WWE and all that. Sure. So I, uh, I brought the suit to that show where I beat Hector Canals for the title. And then after the show, they wanted to do promos, so I put the suit top back on and had the belt, but I didn't put the pants on, and I'd go to the back, and I'm doing all my promos. Um, a wrestler named Jane – I don't remember his name. I'm going to remember it later and hate myself. I'm going to have to tweet it. Um, but, but one of the guys that was from WCWA back in the day was just there hanging out, and he steals my pants, and he goes to the bar with him. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm looking for my pants afterwards. We're all going out to the bar afterwards, do karaoke and all that stuff. And all I had was the suit. Like, I literally wore the suit to the building. Didn't bring, like, workout clothes or anything. I had a suit. <laughs> Dude stole my, my pants. And uh, Jake, who was the booker at EWF, he's there with me. And, and we were going to go out. 
And I was like, I can't sell this in front of him. I can't not go out now just because I'm a pants. So I just kept my trunks on, my kick pads and all that. And I had my Padre hat. So I put on the blue Padre hat and I went to the bar and obviously got tons of attention from everybody because I have a championship belt, suit, and a piece <laughs> of on. So the look got over at the bar. So I'm like, well, that's the look now. And then I ended up finding out that somebody had stolen my pants and it was just a rib. I was like, well, that's the best rib you ever played on me because it got the character created. But right. so I had the Padre hat and I took a photo when I got home. I was like, well, the Padre hat doesn't look good. I want a black hat. And I was like, I'm a heel. What don't I like? And that's where I was like, I hate the Yankees. So every time I put the Yankee <laughs> hat on, it made me kind of hate myself. And I'd always like seen it who's also from Boston that would wear the Yankee gear when they were in New York. And I'm like, I can get away with doing this. And, you know, as a Red Sox fan, it wasn't too bad since we'd won a couple World Series at that point. I was like, yeah, you know, well, if we were still being cursed, maybe I wouldn't have been able to do it. But that's why I wore the Yankee hat is like, it made me hate myself. And want to As an that. Angels fan, I hate myself, but I hate the Red Sox and the Yankees. So it's a win-win. We're all we're all doing well here. I am a giant Angels fan because the Red Sox just keep beating you guys. Although oh. you, you guys are on that crazy losing streak, and then the Red Sox go in there, I'm like, I know we're going to lose one of these. And then Frankie yeah. Kazarian goes to the game, and you guys end up winning. But well, I knew it's Frankie. Yeah, yeah. So th- that's a like we spent a lot of time with SoCal Pro, and I'm glad we did because I think that's important information too. Because that's that's who you are as a, as a person is the time you spent with SoCal Pro. We also spent a lot of time uh, when SoCal Pro was an affiliate of the NWA, uh, Dave Marquez's championship wrestling from Hollywood. Uh, You spent time in Hollywood. You spent time with those original TV tapings. Um, Tell me about working for Dave Marquez. Tell me about working for championship wrestling from Hollywood and and uh, that NWA pro wrestling era. Those were fun times, but they were a lot different than what I think it is now. I mean, I haven't worked Hollywood in nearly a decade at this point. Right. Um, When I started, they were on MAV TV, if you remember what that is. That's yes, just yes. internet only when streaming wasn't even the best quality. And um, I forget where the building was, somewhere in LA, but it was just to the studio. And they just set up this big ring in the middle, no entrance music, no nothing. It was just bell to bell, let's get going. It was very crude and very raw. Um, and I wasn't around that long actually doing the tapings for the television because um, I was working at a fast food place. So I had to work weekends. So if Russell EW a Friday. I couldn't get Sunday. I couldn't get a Friday and a Sunday off. So I had to pick gotcha. a day. Basically. And with SoCal probably in the closest EWF being a little bit closer and getting longer matches, I just had to kind of prioritize what I was doing because I was essentially being used. I wouldn't say as a jobber, but I mean, I w- I'd never won a match there. I don't think. And, but I was getting matches against Adam Pierce. I was wrestling Brent Albright, you know, so I was working great guys and I was getting experience. I had a really great match with Cafu. Kafu, I might have said that wrong. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I was having good matches, but I was never winning. And I kind of realized the writing was on the wall for me that it was honestly, as weird as it sounds, I think if Adam Pierce hadn't been there, I could have filled the Adam Pierce role. But I also knew I was never going to fill the Adam Pierce role if Adam Pierce was around. So it was one of those, like, you kind of got to look at it from an old school standpoint of the territories. Like, you go to a territory that's got a top guy that's basically what the spot you should be in or you think you should be in. You got to go somewhere else because I just knew I was never going to have success there at that time and then never really got back around to it. But I did get some cool experiences when we do joint shows at SoCal Pro. Um, I got to wrestle Scorpio Sky with Percy Pringle out there. Um, yeah, yeah. But I'm not sure if you know this, but I actually ran two shows for Dave Marquez under the NWA banner in 2006 in San Diego. So, Are those the ones that were at the uh, – the uh, downtown. 
at like a YMCA yeah, yeah. In, in this basketball court area that had a balcony. Yeah. Great venue. New Wave ended up running there a couple times after we got done. But I ran those shows, and what sucked about it is there's miscommunication between me and them on what we were going to do. When I was approached by – I was not going to say who, but I was approached by somebody, not Marquez, to run those shows. And I was told, you'll have creative freedom – and we'll cover the money. We just want to set up something in San Diego and all that. Turns out it was completely the other way around. Dave wanted me to front the money and he wanted to bring in all, all the talent that he was using on the TV. So yeah. it ended up working out just simply because of that, because I had certain expectations, Dave had certain expectations and it got lost in translation with the middleman and was what it was. But we had some fun shows in San Diego where um, I got to team up with Carl Anderson to wrestle Adam Pierce and Baby Slim. Uh, I wrestled Sean Reddick on one of those. Um, we had Alex Kozlov wrestling Rocky Romero, I think, on one of them. Wow. Like There were some really great matches on those two shows, and I don't even have the footage anymore. I put them on a DVD, and we lost them when I moved. So um. it's, completely, it's completely lost. I've got a couple of photos of my matches with Riddick where um, it's kind of funny. It's the first time I ever wore long tights. Um, a buddy of mine from UPW named Murph McDermott had retired, and he gave me all his old gear. And he had all these old K and H tights, the really thick, like not shiny material. Yeah. And he had tights and he had some green spandex to put on them for the speedo. And I was like, man, I kind of like that old British bulldog look where they had like the sure. blue speedo and the the white tights. So I started wearing that for a little while. So I had a couple photos of that there, and I don't think I wore it anywhere else. So that's the only memory I even have of that gear because I have no idea what even happened to it. It's just lost. But. Um, that was a lot of fun too. And it gave me a lot of experience running shows and realizing how difficult it is. And that's helped me with SoCal pro and helping Jeff Dino do things and understand where he's coming from at times, working with EWF, knowing where Jesse Hernandez is coming from, even knowing where Dave Marquez is coming from, because there's a certain divide between the wrestlers and the office, essentially anywhere you go. Sure. And, you know, if you listen to Jeff Jarrett's podcast, you can hear him talk about his experience. Like he's kind of got it lucky of he had both sides of it too. And I'd equate it to that a little bit, obviously not at that level, but it was nice to be able to run shows, see what it's like, deal with, like not getting a big enough crowd, not meeting your payroll, having to figure out all that, having to take care of the boys, having to take a loss, having to work the show, having the miscommunication with your business partners and things not work out the way you want. And just understanding that running a wrestling show is not easy. So as much as we want to crap on all these bad promoters that, you know, put on a show, 20 people show up and nobody gets paid as far as I'm concerned, as long as nobody's doing it 10, 15 times in a row and stiffing the boys, you got to give, you know, if you go into a show where they're starting out, you kind of got to know going into it, you may not get paid and it may just be bad. And that's just a decision you have to make for yourself. Right. Actually. um, So my first match back was the SoCal pro anniversary show. And I actually took another booking to work. UWF, I think. Oh, yeah. It's DJ Medina. And he well, was no, the great grandson of uh, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, DJ Anderson. Yeah, there you go. There you yeah. go. But <laughs> he called me a couple months before and was like, "Hey, man, do you want to work for me?" I was like, "Sure." Like, we'll let bygones be bygones from the past. We'll, you know, you're, you're it's ten minutes from my house. Let's do it. So he had a lucha warfare match booked for the main event. And I was going to be a surprise entrance. So I was never announced for it, so I never advertised it. But I get a call from Jeff Dino like two days before. He's like, hey, man, the show canceled on Friday. And I was like, interesting. So I called DJ. He never called me back. And then the day of the show, I took a photo of their Facebook page where it says show canceled. I was like, dude, what the hell? Like, what's going on? And I haven't heard back from him since. So DJ, if you're watching, you better call me soon. I'm never working for you again. Um, But I knew going into it that 
he's had troubles running shows in the past with, you know, getting attendance and stuff like that. So I knew going in that there was a good shot. It was going to get canceled and it was what it was. And yeah. let me ask you about, um, we talked about your time kind of working with Dave and, and, and the, the whole NWA aspect of it. You did get to wrestle scrap iron Adam Pierce a couple times when he was NWA world's champion. That belt today has a lot of chate chate has pizzazz, has this yeah. history behind it. Um, it's got that, uh, you know, legacy where, I mean, you're seeing Trevor Murdoch is the champion these days. Not long ago, it was Matt Cardona. Before that, it was Nick Aldis. And, well, and Aldis' and, reign was ridiculous. I mean, he, I think he really reignited that title by holding it for so long and defending it the way that he did. His first reign is unmatched. Like, I don't think anybody can boast what he did in that first nine months as world's champion before losing it to Cody at all in. But uh, yeah. I mean, like that's, that's all he could have stopped right there and you would still have to slot him somewhere into the NWA hall of fame. But as a guy who got to wrestle for that title and, and, you know, let's be honest when Jeff was holding those shows in SoCal pro and Oceanside, when Adam Pierce came in there with a 10 pounds of gold, that was a very important for not just SoCal pro, but also for the NWA for that exposure and as someone who challenged for that title, how do you feel now that you see that belt on a, like on a former WWE guy and, and, and knowing that, Hey, it's still here. It's still going. It's not, uh, it didn't just go away. I love it because I remember when Shane Douglas threw it down. Right. You know, I mean, I didn't see it when it happened live, but you know, when ECW was really hot, I remember seeing that and going, Oh man, the NWA is done and it's dead. And then Severn had it in the UFC and then Mike Rapata had it. And it just, it completely just became nothing. And then Adam Pierce is the one that really brought that back to life. And I'm not even, I mean, I've heard different stories about it, but I don't think he was even supposed to win. I think Brian Danielson was supposed to win. And then he got hurt or he signed somewhere and wasn't going to be there. So they just put it on Pierce instead and he ran with it, which is he, incredible. Yeah, they. I guess what legitimately happened is, um, and I can't remember the guy's name, but he was from, uh, he was from pro wrestling Noah. He literally broke Danielson's orbital and the diagnosis initially was really, really bad. So they were going to always have Danielson come in to be like the special referee. Uh, and then it turns out towards uh, closer to match time, he would have been okay to wrestle. Um, I mean, he would have been medically cleared to wrestle, but they had, you know, already advertised it for Brent and, and Pierce. And so they ran with that match. And then like, Shortly after that, Danielson got signed with the WWE, the developmental. So he never really got that run. But the initial plan, like you said, was Danielson to win it. And then the backup plan was Danielson to get that belt at some point from Pierce. But it just never went that way. So Adam Pierce just kind of ran with it, like you said. And look how great that worked out for Adam. I mean, talk about a guy taking the ball and running with it and look where he's at now. Yeah. I mean, it's insane how what he did with that. He's the one like, – he deserves all the credit for really bringing it back. Nick, all this took it to another level after that. For but sure. If Adam, but, if, I mean, now, granted, if Danielson wins the title instead, probably still gets the same prestige to a degree. But you, you have I no idea. So. You don't know how it ends up going, though. But it's probably still going to you know, end up coming back mainstream a bit. But it was really cool wrestling Adam. And mm – -hmm. I mean, I'm not, I hate breaking cafe, but we've already done a little bit on here, so I don't care. But we were drinking in a, in a hot tub in Portland one point, And I was like, so you and me are booked for SoCal Pro for the NWA world title in like three weeks. We're both booked for AWS the next day. What if you drop the belt on me for the night and just don't <laughs> tell anybody? Just pull me over. Just hit your head, 
something, you know, go down. Yeah. I was like, then you can start getting closer to Ric Flair. And this is how I'm pitching <laughs> like, like, come on, you know Ric Flair would do this. You know Ric Flair would go to New Zealand, put somebody over, you know, sure. get the title, and then bring it right back. I was like, I am Tommy Rich. You are Ric Flair. <laughs> I will drop it right back the next night. It will not mess with anything. But now I can start calling myself the NWA World Champion. And I was begging him. I was like, just do it. Just put it on me. I will get so much buzz out of it. And at that point in my career, um, that was sort of like, I feel like I have three different careers. I had the early UPW years, the zero one and all that. And then when I came back to SoCal Pro, I was pretty overweight at first. And the first match I had with Adam, I was in really rough shape. And that was before he'd won the world title. But by the second time we'd wrestled for the title, I was, you know, starting to get a lot better. I was wrestling in Portland a lot more up in Washington and was starting to get around a lot more and was starting yeah. to get booked and was starting to make a little bit of money wrestling and everything was going good. And I was like, man, if you put that belt on me, even just for a night, that puts me in the, in the history books forever that as an NWA world champion, that's something I can say. And I ended up not, you know, we ended up not doing it. Obviously. Sure. But I do have clean pinfall victories over Adam. And with the students that I train now, I tell people, if you accomplish anything, talk about it. You know, I talk about being on Raw. I talk about going to Japan because I want fans to know, like, hey, you've done all this stuff. Like, right. You know, you're not going to get over if you don't tell people all your accomplishments. Um, but I, I used to say forever when Adam was champion, like, I've pinned the NWA world champion clean. Yeah. No BS. I've pinned him clean in the middle of the ring. So if you give me an opportunity on the right night, I could be the world champion because I've beaten him it, before. And I used to do that in almost every promo I had just to remind people that I'd beat him. Even when I was SoCal Pro Champion, EWF Champion, I'd always talk about how I beat NWA World Champion Adam Pierce, even though he wasn't world champ when I beat him. It's no different than when Owen beat Brett right before Brett wins the title. And then, right, right, right. You, brother, now you're a champ. Give me, you know, my opportunity. Um, well, and the thing about it too is you have the resume to back it up too. It's not like you had a one lucky night. I mean, you you kind of you did. You were the guy in SoCal. You were the king of the IE. So I mean, like, there's yeah. no real like a. It's not like a backhanded compliment or anything. Like you 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 did beat Pierce, and if given the right opportunity, any given Sunday, you could have done it again. Well, and my pitch also include the fact that I'm 6'5", usually about 230, 240-ish. I'm like, I'm sure. not a small guy. It's not like you're putting over some small indie guy where people are like, oh, my God, you lost him. Like, I'm, I think I was bigger than him at the time because he was leaned out pretty good. Yeah. I was like, it's believable that I can beat you. Like, you know, and then you can <laughs> give me the pile driver tomorrow. You know, but wasn't meant to be. He didn't want to go for it. I think Marquez would have killed him if he had. He might have. It might have killed Marquez if, you know, he just reads online, Tommy Wilson wins world title from Adam. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the whole world would have assumed Adam was hurt at that point, too, which would have probably scared people. Well, you, and, and then, I mean, this isn't the Adam Pierce show. This is the Tommy Wilson show. And so, but like he did get hurt eventually, ended up dropping the belt to Cabana when he was injured. Yeah. Uh, well, let's get back to you because I mean, there's a lot of this story that we we're touching on the, the the very tip of the iceberg. But your career has been very ups and downs, and yeah. uh, you know, I was shocked. Uh, I saw the the post on Instagram a couple months ago, and I was completely blown away because I I it, although I I consider you somebody I like you, I don't think I followed you on Facebook at the time, but you had a health scare and. You almost weren't here. No, I wasn't here for a little while, too. Um, I had gotten out of wrestling for the most part. I was doing a few shows here and there, but I'd, I'd left SoCal Pro. I'd left EWF. Um, 
life in general wasn't going the best. And I'd actually deleted my Facebook. The Facebook page that I have now, I actually um, opened in like February when I realized I'm going to be coming back to wrestling. I was like, I need to have a Facebook page again. Okay. Um, for the most part, it had just deteriorated into people screaming about politics and family and stuff. And I was like, I don't need this garbage. So I deleted it probably four or five years ago anyway. Okay. And mostly just use Twitter um, whenever I would post anything. But, you know, just like everybody, you know, I had depression issues, um, marital problems. You know, my first son was born and, you know, that's difficult as any new parent, you know, knows it's tough. So I was drinking a lot more than I should have. My body had fallen apart a little bit. Um, I had had a trial with WWE, I think, three days before my 30th birthday in 2011, 2012. I don't know the year, but uh, about 10 years ago. So I'll be 40 in a couple of months. And the trial went really well. And it was, I think, the first one they ever did where they brought in, they paid talents to come in. They flew people in throughout the country. And the first day they started cutting people. And I had been to the ones where we pay. And, you know, you go for the four days and then that's that. It's, you know, because you paid to be there. Yeah. This time they started cutting people. And the first guy they cut was a guy named Kyle Webb, who's a guy from around here. And they flat out said, they're like, he had a shitty attitude. That's not what we want. And, wow. they kind of, and they made an example out of him in front of everybody. And all of us were like, what? And I was sharing a room with Ryan Taylor and we're just both like, dude, what's going to like, what's going on. So it was good though, because it upped the game for everybody. Everybody, you know, took it a hell of a lot more seriously at that point. Cause day one, all we did was roll. It was getting the yeah. ring roll. I think that it was eight hours of just that. And Kyle had a problem with that. He's like, man, let me have a match. Like, this is stupid. Why are we rolling? And the rest of us were like, because William Regal is telling us to, and that's why we're doing it. And I'm going to do whatever he tells me to do. Right. Right. But so that trial went really well for me. And I actually really thought I was going to get signed out of that. And I got the, um, the email a couple months later, like, sorry, not interested. We'll keep you on our files. But I talked to Bill DeMott because he'd remembered me from UPW and a match I had there in like 2005 where they were scouting some of the big guys and they had me little Nate and a couple other guys wrestle the big guys. So the big guys, could shine and the guy i got in there with just went completely blank and i carried him the whole way through and the match was terrible but i was able to carry him through a match and get it done and he demont complimented me afterwards and it's like man that was he owes you a stake for that match like you made it we're not hiring him, so don't worry about that it's like we're not hiring you either because you're not what we're looking for at the moment so he, he remembered me from that so i was like this is going great he's remembering me and then at the end of it he's like look man you know things are weird right now we're not hiring anybody over 30 to wrestle. He's like, you're going to be 30 in a couple of days. Like we wanted to see if you'd blow us away. He's like, you did good, but you didn't blow us away where, you know, I'm going to be able to go to Vince or whoever, Johnny Ace and say, we need to hire this guy. And so that kind of kicked in a little bit of depression of like, oh man, there's one wrestling company in the world, really. Like impact was around TNA was around. Sure. I'd known guys that had gone to TNA and then, you know, they get hired and then they get let go six months later and they're making 500 bucks a night, but they're only wrestling two nights a month. And at that point in time, I was a general manager at Pizza Hut making almost 90 grand a year with bonuses. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm going to quit that to go maybe make money wrestling. So for me, it was a WWE or broke kind of thing. And it just got in my head of like, that's over. Like they said no. And they said, I'm too old. I can't even change that. It's not like yeah. I can go put on the gas and get bigger, or, you know, get leaner or do this or do that. It's you're literally just too old, which is something they've obviously changed since. And they go back and forth. And now I know a little bit better of, you know, some days they want indie guys. Sometimes they want athletes. Sometimes they want women. Sometimes they want giant men, you know, and it sucks because, I mean, they had, a you know, Ryan Taylor got hired, you know, because he was what they wanted one day. And then six months later, he wasn't what they wanted. 
Right. And that sucks because that's a great talent that they should have kept, in my opinion. But 100%. it wasn't. But that's what I was seeing going on with TNA, too. And that's why I didn't want to do that. So I never even pursued that. So my drinking got really bad. I was managing a Pizza Hut, able to eat free food all day. So I got really fat pretty quickly right after that. And then my son was born, wasn't sleeping. I got hurt a couple of times, kept working through it as far as wrestling, was working 60-hour weeks on top of that, wasn't seeing my wife. Things were going pretty badly. And I just got really depressed and just kept drinking and drinking and drinking. And then over time, it just got worse. And I got to a point where I, I could drink about a half a bottle, like the big bottle of Captain Morgan a day, like mixed in with Diet Coke, and I wouldn't even feel anything. Like I'd feel the buzz. Sure. But I could go to work and start drinking in the morning. I'd be fine. And at one point, I I, um, I never actually wrestled a match drunk, but Jake sent me out to do a run-in on Andy Brown. And it was unannounced. If I'd known it was coming, I would have been drinking. I was on like third on the show, and Anthony I and I had ridden together. So he was driving home anyway, and he was the main event. And after the main was done, Idol goes back. Andy Brown's out in the ring with the belt, and Jake goes, go super kick him. I'm like, I'm really fucked up right now. I shouldn't do this. He's like okay, don't do it. And then I went, nah, never mind. I got it. And I went out there on my own and super kicked him. But I still can remember Andy Brown's face because he knew I was drunk. Yeah. Uh, because I was just in the back. I was like, well, I'm not driving home. I've already had my match. I'm done for the night. I'm going to have fun now. Right. So he saw me in there and I talked to him afterwards and he's like, dude, I thought you were just drunk and just came in on your own. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, no, they sent me out there so we could set up us for the next month. He's like, I didn't, you know, if I'd known it was coming, I wouldn't have done that. But that's where I was in life, too, to the point where as soon as my match was over, I was getting shit-faced if I had to ride home. And I was doing that at work. I was doing it at home. like, And I was functioning. I mean, I never missed taking my kid to school. I never missed a day of work. I never missed an obligation. And so I always just thought I was fine. And while I was overweight, I mean, I'm still – I'm 6'5", so 270 wasn't the worst feel on me. Um, you know, it was a little rough on the knees and the hands, but – but I was fine. Sure. And then finally uh, at the end of 2019, it just caught up to me. And I think about a month before I, um, I thought I had food poisoning. My stomach hurt really bad for about two or three days. And in retrospect, I'm pretty certain that it was the first time that I got pancreatitis, which is where your pancreas just shuts down because you either have too much fat or alcohol in your diet. And I just muscled through it and was like, it's just food poisoning. It'll go away in a few days. And then about a month later, I went back in and they diagnosed me with pancreatitis. And the last thing I remember is them handing me uh, the gown to put on. And I just like fell over and collapsed in pain. And I remember grabbing the guy, the nurse that was in there. And I just went, don't let me die. I have a little boy. And that's wow. the last thing I remember for about probably seven or eight weeks. Because wow. I went into a coma, which... Um, I was able to find out after the fact, because my wife kept a ton of notes, about 300 pages of notes. So I've gone back and read them. I, um, at the time, I didn't know how long I was in the coma for or any of that. I thought I was in for like two months when it was really only actual four weeks that I was unconscious. And they would bring me in and out as they could. There was probably only about two weeks where I was completely out the entire time. But I just dreamed the entire time, just wild stuff. Um, I had this crazy dream at one point that I was like a blue fish man. So like I had scales and my skin was blue and we were living underwater in this like uh, little town off the like coast of Seattle. Cause that's where my family's from. And my aunt was there. Like my whole family were there and we were all these blue fish people. And I remember these pirates like invading our little village and like capturing me and they were selling us to turn me into margarita salt. <laughs> wow. so, like, that's where my brain was going. And yeah. it's weird, the whole time through, like, I remember like literally like 
feeling like I'm a fish, like just sitting on a table waiting to be sliced up and wow. just sitting there going like, how am I going to get out of this? And I don't even remember how I got away from it or whatever, but it was like, I was doing that. And then there was another time where I was in a wheelchair and I was being told that I took a pile driver wrong and my neck was broken essentially. And that I was paralyzed from the neck down and that I'd lost consciousness and they were trying to figure out what was going on. But once again, still in Seattle, cause I don't know. My brain just went to where my family was, but um, I was working at like this, dis this place like disabled people where like they give jobs to people with disabilities. So they were having me do that. And then it like flashes to this other time where my wife is working for the WWE, but she's Vince McMahon's daughter. So like she's Stephanie McMahon, but she's my wife and right. it's my face. And Vince McMahon is actually Donald Trump and we're at WrestleMania in Dallas. And at some point in time, I pull this lever and the entire stadium just turns into this giant stream of shit. And everybody's going down this slide of shit. Wow. And I, and I end up serving my wife with divorce papers while we're going down. And I'm just like, what the hell? Wow. And, and there's dozens of these. I'm writing a book on all of this too, to just kind of get it all out there and try to sure. remember something. But it was like cutting in and out of all of that. And there were times where I would, I like, I would, I've remembered some things that were kind of real, but weren't. So around my son's birthday, which was about seven weeks after I went in, um, I thought we went to like an amusement park in LA. My wife, her dad, and me were up there. And when we were done, I remember standing there and going, all right, let's go home. It's, you know, our son's birthday. Let's go see him. And my wife goes, you can't go home. You're you don't look good. I was like, no, I look fine. And I look in this mirror, which I don't know why I was there, but I look in the mirror. I'm like, see, no, I look great. Let's go home. And they wouldn't let me. And I ended up saying, if you guys aren't going to let me go home, get the fuck out of here and never come back. And I never want to see either of you ever again. Yeah. And I actually said that to them, but obviously I was just lying in the bed weak going, let's go home. And they're like, you can't, you're in a hospital. But in my head, we were at, at this amusement park. So there's weird things like that, where the reality makes it real life where like, what I said actually happened, but what I was thinking happened wasn't real. Right. There was one point where I thought this nurse came in and like took my bed away and threw me down in mud. And he was turning all the patients into Hasbro's like WWF Hasbro's. Yeah. 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 Like, Wait, you're going to turn me into one. So am I going to be one? Like, am I still real? And I remember being excited, but scared at the same time. Cause it was like, I love Hasbro. So <laughs> are you making one of me or am I going to become one? And like having no idea what was going on with that. And they actually, I, I called my wife. Cause like, I've been lying in mud for six hours. You need to come help me. And she's like, they have a video camera on you. You're in the bed right now. I was like, I'm in mud right now. Wow. So it, it took a long time. Like, it took a really long time before the delusion started going away. We're like, I would just go, hey, did this really just happen? And people were like, no, you're making that up in your head. I was like, okay, I thought I was. And to this day, I still get every now and again, it kind of get, I get flashbacks where I kind of feel like maybe my head's going to a weird place. Uh, but it's nowhere near as bad as it was, you know, immediately afterwards. And the doctor said, that's just what happens when you're in a coma for so long. It's like your brain yeah. is a weird place and that's all it is. But on top of, you know, all the head issues, you know, being disoriented, essentially, um, you know, I went from when about 270 when I went in, um, they listed me at 310 at my heaviest when they had me on fluids. And then by April, I was down to 182, wow. which was my lowest. So I'd lost about 130 pounds in about a month and a half. And 
you know, I, I posted the photo on my Facebook page of, you know, me holding my son and my arms are like, you know, that big around. I look like I did when I first started wrestling and I had no muscle mass. And, but I, I had no muscle mass. I couldn't walk. I could barely like sit up in the bed. You know, uh, luckily I had, I had done DDP yoga for quite a while. I actually, I did DDP yoga in like 2005 at UPW when he was coming yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. He went on Shark that he'd come and done that. So when he put the DVDs on sale, I'd bought those a while back and would do them on occasion, especially when I was really heavy because it really does help with the joints and all that. So I was in the bed lying down and I would just, you know, lay back and I would just go like this, just lift my arm. And that's all I could do. You know, I had zero strength. I couldn't lift my legs. I couldn't sit up without using, you know, the chair that would sit you up. So, I mean, I had to completely start my body over from scratch, which looking back now, two and a half years later, it's been a blessing because all the injuries that I had went away. So I've been working through a shoulder injury since like 03. And then that's right with Andrew Hellman, where he gave me a shoulder breaker and this shoulder just you know, went out of the socket and never went back in. Um, wow. You know, I, both my knees were injured. And I also had like weird issues with anger because of the baseball slide thing, which I'm sure you yeah. know about. I don't think everybody else does. But if you, if you want to go on YouTube and, and put in, you know, wrestler knocks himself out on baseball slide, that's me. And I'm going for a baseball slide on Scott Lost. And I jump and I hit my temple and I knock myself out. And from that point on, like, I'd get headaches a lot. And I would just have like anger outbursts because I think just from the head trauma and the CTE, because I definitely have some sort of brain trauma from wrestling over the years. I've taken enough sure. unprotected chair shots, the baseball slide, a couple bad bumps where you just hit your head. Um, kind of what I think might have happened to Adam Cole last night at that pay-per-view. Looked like he kind of had a funky finish. He might have hit his head. So hopefully he's okay. And th those just happen on anything. You know, you take a shoulder tack when you go back, you know, you could knock yourself out. Sure. But, all of those head issues kind of went away. So when I came to, while I was disoriented and having these delusions, all the anger and depression and all that stuff had gone away. And I don't know if that's just because I, you know, did die a couple times while I was in the coma and came back and my body just kind of reset itself. But that's been a benefit of it too, is like the depression that I had, like just resting depression, like just sitting, you know, yeah. like if I'm sitting watching the Red Sox win the World Series, like in 18, when they won, did nothing for me. Like I, I didn't celebrate. It was literally just uh, they better win because they should. Because like I just I've become a Yankee fan at that point of like I just expect them to win the World Series every year. Right, right. So like in, in thirteen I went nuts when they won it. And, you know, in seven and 04, obviously too. But by two thousand eighteen I didn't care. It's like it was just expected and whatever. And that's when I really knew that things were off. You know, in my brain and that like I really was depressed. Is like my team's winning the World Series and I'm just like okay, cool, whatever. And you're so not taking any joy in that. Huh? You weren't taking any joy in that. No, like, and I would have been livid if they'd lost. Because, you know, every year after that, in 2019, when the Astros knocked them out, I was livid about that. But it was, but that's all I could really get out of it was when they lose, I'm unhappy. When they win, it's like, well, you better win. And so if I can watch the Red Sox win the World Series and not be happy, I knew I was messed up in the head. And that doesn't exist anymore. And that's been nice. And, it sucks because I know a lot of people that deal with stuff like that. And I wish there was a way to say, hey, here's how you snap out of it. But I wouldn't yeah. recommend going into a coma for four weeks to do it either. No, I, you know, my yeah. brother used to joke with me because he's had issues with his body. He's like, man, I just need to go in a coma so I can lose a bunch of weight real quick. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, so it's four weeks in the coma, three points in there I died where I actually coded. 
And the last time that I coded, my wife actually ended up saving my life. And I didn't realize this until I read her notes afterwards is I was such a difficult patient to deal with for the nurses just because of all the wires in me and how needy I was, how much pain I was in, how disoriented I was that um, towards the end, some of the nurses weren't really giving me the best care from what I found out. And I had something like I had fluid building up in my lungs and my wife came in and she's like, his, he looks scale. His skin is too scaled. Like something's wrong. And they're like, no, he's fine. Don't worry. He'll be fine. And then she ends up calling the doctor and is like, I don't think he's fine. So the doctor came in because she called him and he came in and they ended up doing a, some sort of surgery on me, thorsentesis or something, some of those, but to drain all the fluid out of my lungs. And in the note, she wrote down that if, the doctor hadn't come and done that, I probably would have drowned within 10 hours. So oh. if we just gone about it, I would have been done. And they probably would have been able to bring me back that time either. But during that, I did code at one point and the doctor was already there and we were good. So three very close calls on that one. And it's kind of crazy to look at it and think like, man, I've been dead. Like my heart wasn't beating for a period of time. And it's scary, you know, as a parent, you know, I don't want you know, my son to grow up without a dad. And that, right. that was the worst part about all of it. When he first came and visited me about week nine, I think I was in a wheelchair and they rolled me out and he runs up to me and I go to pick him up and like put him on my lap. And as soon as he gets to me, I was like, Oh my God, I can't lift him. And then luckily for me, he jumped up and he like crushed my quad, which really hurt. <laughs> but I was like, God, he didn't notice that I couldn't pick him up. Yeah. And, you know, when I got home, I started setting goals. You know, the first thing I did was grab the two pound weights and start doing curls. I'm like just using those curl weights going like this. Cause that's all I could lift. And I was like, my first goal is to be able to pick my kid up again. So that was the first thing I went for. And then once I was able to do that, I was able to set more goals. I'm like, all right, now I want to do this. Now I want to do that. And then somewhere within the last year, I started thinking like, maybe I could wrestle again. Like, this is kind of a cool story. It'd be a pretty cool comeback to actually get back in the ring just once. And with the rumble that I did, it was kind of intended to maybe be a one-off. That's why we did a rumble and not just a singles match because I flat out said, I need an out. Like if this goes badly, if I have a panic attack, if my body's just not holding up, in a rumble, I can eliminate myself and I can get out of there and nobody will know anything happened but me. Right, the other right. So we can have a backup plan for the finish and we can get through it. And fortunately, the match went perfect. It went Everything went exactly the way it did. And halfway through, I actually went to the top rope and did a missile drop kick on somebody for absolutely no reason other than just like, eh, why not? Let's see if I can still the, do Because the fans were cheering and the adrenaline was pumping. That's why. Yeah, and that's what that's what I was saying about the moonsault earlier. If you have enough people watching and you're in the right environment, it's a lot easier to do something like that. Um, so the match obviously went really well, and I was happy with that. And I'm slowly working my way back to taking more bookings. You know, we've got the ladder match coming up on July 16th. I'm on EWF on July 30th. Wow. Uh, there's a couple other shows that I've committed to that I don't have flyers for yet. I, I haven't written down what the exact dates are. But I'll be posting those as those come up. And I'm hoping by like fall time to actually be going regularly every weekend, doing at least one show, possibly two or three, just depending. Because um, when I first got back in a ring in August last year, I got in the ring. Like The only way that I can describe it is that I basically lost all my athletic ability. So my workouts had gone well. I was able to lift weights. I was able to do a little bit of a jog. But there was like no spring in my step. So it's like sure. being like a Zack Sabre Jr. and being like Brackus. So I felt like, <laughs> you know, one of those were like, yeah, I, I went in for an up and over in the corner. I could barely get my feet off the ground. 
And I was like, man, I got a lot of work to do. I'm like, I, I feel like I was in good shape by August of last year, physically, like for a normal person, but I had lost all my wrestling ability. So I started working on that a little bit and wasn't even sure if I'd ever really be able to do it again. So I'm like, if I can't do an up and over, I don't think I'm going to be able to do much because I don't want to just be, I'm, I'm not a big guy, you know, to be a big power guy where I'm just bowling people over and just wrestling like that. That's not really what I'd want to do anyway. Right, right. So I wasn't really sure until honestly a couple of months ago when it really started kicking in. I was able to start doing some of the cartwheels again. I did a moonsault off the middle rope and landed clean. I did mess up my hip a little bit on the landing. So I was like, maybe you need to leave the moonsaults out for a little bit. But as my cardio has improved, my leg strength still isn't there. So like early on, you know, five minutes into training, my heart would be beating through my chest. And then as that kind of progressed and I got healthier there, my legs would give out on me running a spot halfway through, um, you know, Judas and I were working on something a few months ago and like a minute and a half. And I was like, dude, I got nothing in my legs. I'm like, I'm just wow. rubber. So yeah, yeah. my legs have been the last thing to come back. My upper body feels good. My cardio feels good, but my leg strength just doesn't feel like it's there yet. So I'm taking it as slow as I can. Cause I mean, I have all the time in the world, but I'm also old. So there's no reason to rush it because the reality is I would love to get out there and wrestle a ton. And, you know, ultimate goal, I think would be to get to like AEW or something like that. I'd love to get on PWG at some point because I feel like throughout my career, people haven't considered me the quote unquote good wrestler because I'm not out there wrestling the best wrestlers and getting to have the best matches. I'm wrestling guys like Radical Ross who have very little experience and I'm carrying them through a match. You know, the right. program Karumba, you know, if you go back and watch those matches, they probably weren't the best matches technically. They're probably a little bit rough. Like if you watch anybody when they're a year, two years in on Karumba's part. Sure. But I, I wouldn't go back and say any of those were masterpiece matches. It's just storytelling is what I loved about that whole program. But I became reliable, especially for SoCal Pro and EWF, working their, their young students. Um, I had a really cool moment about a month ago. The second match that I did was at the uh, Lytle Creek EWF show, and I got to wrestle Richie Slade. And he had, yeah. no, he had no idea I was even on the show. And I had no idea I was going to wrestle him when I got there. And we started talking, and I told him what had happened to me. And I was like, yeah, man, you're my second match back. And he's like, dude, I think you were my second match ever. And I was like, I knew I was like one of his first matches because I went out there and um, I was told, just go out there and give him 15 minutes. Just call nothing, have a finish, go out there and just carry him through 15 minutes. And we went out there and he knocked out of the ballpark. And I remember telling him like, you did great, kid. So after this last EWF show, we get to the back and he goes, hey, you did great, kid. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank you, man. Well, we went 15 minutes bell to bell, and I was very happy with that because going from a rumble where, you know, you can get lost in the shuffle and rest a little bit. Yeah. I'm really worried doing 15 minutes and having to do 15 minutes with somebody like Slade who can really go. So I was happy with the progression there, and I'm happy with the way I'm progressing moving forward on everything. But I really, really this last run, because this will be my last run no matter what, and it could be one more show. I mean, I may die in that ladder match in a couple of weeks. Uh, Don't say that, bro. You know, yeah, but my feeling is, you know, I want to go out there and show people what I can do. I'd yeah. love to work at PWG. It was always a goal, but I never feel like I got the opportunity because I never got the chances to really wrestle guys very often where I was wrestling a TJ Perkins or, you know, a guy like of that quality. And I want to get more matches like that. You know, there's, you know, some good students around right now that I would love to work with and just see what I can do. And, and those are the goals that I want to have is I want to be considered a good wrestler 
not just a promoter is that a guy that can carry, you know, a new student or a guy who is too old, you know, oh, a honky tonk man's here. Go out and wrestle Tommy. Tommy will carry honky tonk. No problem. <laughs> you know, I can still do all of that, but I want to take it to the next level. And for the last two years, I mean, all I've been doing is watching wrestling. Cause I mean, it's been a pandemic. I mean, yeah. I literally went from being in the hospital to being out a couple of days to the shutdown and having a completely fried immune system. I mean, I went to the hospital. I would go to doctor's appointments in the hospital uh, for the multiple surgeries that I had for the first six or seven months. And after that, I was home. I never went anywhere. So I was playing, you know, the Legend of Zelda video games, you know, going through and redoing all of those and watching wrestling <laughs> all day. And I've just been studying a lot more stuff. And, you know, I used to watch a lot of Shawn Michaels when I was younger. And it's hard for somebody my size to take a Shawn Michaels match and practically apply it to what I can do. Because a lot of what I like that he does is the way he sells for guys. But everybody he's selling for is usually way bigger than he is. So I can't sell that way because, you know, Anthony Idol is the guy around these parts that's really bigger than me. Maybe Watts. Yeah, and that's about it. You know, even at AEW, you know, you've got um, you got Hobbs and you got Lance Archer and, and Wardlow. I'm sorry, Wardlow. So yeah. you got you know, big, big guys. You know, Brian Cage is gigantic, but he's not a big guy because he's under six feet, and he and yeah. he's around like a luchador, which is insane. But so I can't I can't learn from a Shawn Michaels in a way to apply it to my matches. I can take stuff from him and give it to other guys and have other guys do that in the matches. But so I've really gotten to watching William Regal. You know, he's always a guy that I've loved, but people forget that he is six foot four, 240 pounds, you know, in yeah. the mid 90s in WCW. Like, he's a big man. Yeah. And watching him, you know, have matches with Rey Mysterio, Psychosis, Dean Malenko, and Chris Benoit on some of these old Nitros, it, some of the stuff on there, I'm 100% stealing from him. And I'm going <laughs> to apply forward because nobody's doing that stuff either. This, it's amazing if you watch stuff from the mid '90s or the '80s. There's a lot of stuff that's been lost with time that doesn't get used anymore, and I want to bring some of that stuff back and see about reworking it to fit the current style, the AEW style, the PWG style, the independent style, and see what I can do with that. Because I only have so many bumps in me, and I know that, and that's where studying Regal comes in handy. Because there's a lot of rolling, a lot of cartwheels, a lot of mat work, and I'm going to have to rely on that this time around. I can't just go out there and you know hit dives and moonsaults and rely on that to get myself over. So I am going to have to go to work a little bit harder in ring as far as you know actual technical wrestling ability. So that's something something I've been focused on a lot, and it's been difficult with my legs not being at full strength yet. It's hard to do the cartwheels and the rolls and get back up from that because I just don't have that that hop in my step that I want yet. But when that hop comes, I'm going to be flying through matches and having a great time, and I really want to test it out. And with PWG being two hours north of me, there's no reason not to strive to be on there. With AEW, bring it in. I mean, Judiz is on there. I mean, one of the guys that I trained is on there. There's no reason why... I can't believe that I could get on there and get an opportunity and maybe I'm not what they're looking for. Maybe I am, who knows, you know, and maybe the story that I have can resonate with some people that, you know, it's worth having me around so that people can see like you can hit rock bottom. Cause I have a really hard time believing anybody could get any worse than where I was at with the depression issues I was having, the anger issues I was having, you know, marital issues, you know, kid issues and just being an alcoholic, taking pain pills all the time. I mean, doing other illicit drugs and, you know, not taking care of myself and not even caring at a certain point. And to get out of that and to, you know, die and be in a coma and 
you know, lose who I was as a person too. I mean, when I lost all that weight, I mean, I ceased to be a wrestler at that point. Nobody would ever look at me and go, you used to be a pro wrestler. And when I was in the hospital bed at one point, I got a call from Jake at EWF and he's like, Hey man, you want to come work a program for our anniversary show? Just like manage it. And I was like, man, I can't walk right now. Yeah. Let alone, you know, even come out in front of a crowd. And I was like, there's no way. And I told him that day, I was like, I'm never wrestling again. I'm never going to do anything again. I'm like, I've lost everything. And I was in so much pain because I had no muscle. You know, you don't realize like when, like I sleep on my side. So like, my right leg would crush my left leg because there was no muscle in either leg to hold the one up. And you don't realize like, even when you're resting, your muscles are still holding things in place for you. And I completely lost that. So like my kneecap on my right leg would just crush the other leg. So I'd have yeah. to flow and like, you know, move my body around. And then I could only lay on a certain spot for so long where I'd start bruising. So I'd have to constantly be turning myself throughout the night. And, you know, I remember watching the 2020 rumble, probably like two months after it happened and I'm just sitting there in pain and go and watching Daniel Bryan and Bray White in that strap match and going, I never want to do that again. Like there's no way I would ever let somebody hit me with a strap, take a bump, do any of that. And then two and a half years later, there's nothing I'd rather do right now. <laughs> if Bray White was going to walk in right now, we're having a strap match in front of nobody. I'd fucking do it right now, <laughs> you know? So to go from that to being completely crippled and to come back, I, I think there's a lot of people can get out of that. You know, not being able well, to drink. Good. I was going to say, I mean, yeah, 100%, because you didn't just go through something where you lost muscle mass. You didn't go just through something where you were in a coma. Like, you literally, your life ended, and yeah. you were reborn. And I think that, uh, you know, just take the wrestling out of the equation. You're alive, man, and you probably shouldn't have been. And no, I absolutely shouldn't. The doctor told me when I left, I, I, the photo I took with the doctor that I posted, Yeah, he, he says to me, he's like, hey, we didn't want to tell you this before because we weren't even sure. You know, he's like, two weeks ago, you could have just died again and we might not have been able to save you. Wow. You know, you were, he's like, you're out of the woods to an extent right now. He's like, you still have to take care of yourself. He's like, but right. there shouldn't be anything now that will just suddenly kill you. He's like, for about seven weeks there, I could have died at any point and just been done and three times i did and they were able to bring me back but they're like you you know you could have gone he's like but you had about a five to ten percent chance of living you should have died and then uh one of the other doctors came and he's like yeah when i see patients as sick as you they don't leave here not in the morgue he's like we send them out in body bags he's like you have no right to be alive and that kind of hits differently you know, especially having a kid just going like he could have grown up without a dad and, you know, I look at our Christmas photos from that year of him on his bicycle and I forget what I had going on. I had work and some other stuff going on, but we weren't going to be able to ride the bikes together right after Christmas. And I was like, we'll do it after New Year. I promise. We'll go, I'll teach you how to ride a bike after New Year. And then I ended up in the hospital. I didn't end up teaching him till you know, eight or nine months later, you know, we went out in the summertime and he finally started learning how to ride his bike. And he actually waited for me to do it because he wanted me to teach him. So That's awesome. I look at the I look at the photo from Christmas of him sitting on his bike. It's the last photo I have in my phone of him. And just think like that could have been how it ended for him and I is me saying, we'll do it in a week and then not happening. And it makes you reevaluate, you know, getting into a fight with somebody, anybody. And this is where, you know, in my post, I was very, very much wanting to apologize to people that I've been an asshole to over the years, because especially the last five or six years, 
when I was drinking and in a lot of pain. I wasn't nice to a lot of people. And some people deserved it. Some didn't. Some, it was whatever. But I look back and I think it was just a waste of time to ever put somebody down or make somebody feel like shit or to yell at, you know, a trainee for something. And I just wanted everybody to know that like, I truly do feel terrible about the, the way that I was and that I don't ever want to be like that again. And that, it, and it's still, you know, it's hard at times because people are assholes and sometimes you just want to go off. <laughs> I mean, it's just the way it is. But, you know, I lo- I've lost friends over the years. And it's unfortunate to look at it and think, man, I lost this person in my life and I could die tomorrow and never know like if that person still cared or not. And, you know, you do that with family, you do it with friends, you know, I do it with my kid because, you know, I, I send my kid to school every day and sometimes think, is he coming back today? You know, is yeah. something going to happen? Like you just never know. And it's not even, you know, just school shootings. Like just what if, you know, he's playing football and he hits his head on something, you know, and he bleeds out like you never know when any of us is going to go. And it really hits you a lot harder when, you know, you've been through what I've been through. So I hope people, you know, that, that know me can learn from it and, you know, do better themselves. And I've had some friends that, you know, have stopped drinking and that's been nice to have people around, you know, that don't have alcohol around. Um, I've been fortunate that, you know, we live in California and can eat cannabis very easily. And I've been able to find the kind of stuff that works for me, the right edibles, um, the unfortunate consequence of all this is, uh, I have no pancreas really. It's completely shut down and destroyed. So I'm technically pre-diabetic. So I have to watch my diet, but at the same time, so I can't eat carbohydrates. I can't eat like a big plate of pasta because that'll, you know, trigger the diabetes, but your pancreas also digests all the fat. So I can't eat fat either. So I have to balance, you know, between lean protein, vegetables, I can get about maybe 50 to 100 grams of fat a day that I can eat. Sugar has to be absolutely minimal. And I really have to stick to brown rice, oatmeal, you know, and healthy stuff like that. And, you know, I drink a lot of protein shakes because it's just quick protein to get in. But it's it's been hard to just get through that, not being able to just eat normal foods, not being able to drink alcohol. Um, but I was taking edibles at one point that were, had a ton of sugar in them. Yeah. So, man, I got to get something that doesn't have that. So I was able to find this brand at a place by my house that's, you know, it's a dollar per pill. It's 20 milligrams of THC. I take half of one. Usually about two hours later, it hits pretty good and it mellows me out. So if I'm feeling anxious or whatever and want to have a drink, you know, I just take that. My doctor has me prescribed Xanax regularly. So as long as I'm not abusing it, she'll keep giving me that so that if, you know, something gets triggered, I'm able to take that and take care of myself where in the past I would have just drank through and whatever. Sure. You know, I, I can't do that now. And I also, I mean, I, you know, I, I was always a little fat kid, you know, until I got really tall, you know, quick in my late teens, I loved eating food, you know? So, I mean, the last four or five years before I got sick, I mean, I'd eat pizza all day, macaroni and cheese, pancakes, donuts, <laughs> and alcohol. And that's why I got so big, but was it, you know, a good big, right. And I can't do any of that. And it's not like, hey, I shouldn't do it. It's like, I literally can't. It'll kill me. Right. You know, I had a donut on Father's Day this year. I got a cream filled. I felt that for like five hours. Wow. You know, I could just feel my body not like it because, I mean, donuts are just fat and sugar. Right. So everything I shouldn't be having. So when I have too much sugar on any given day, my left foot goes numb, Whoa. which is actually really good. Um, you know, I had a lot of neuropathy that came out of it. So when I woke up, you know, my entire left leg was numb and I've had some issues with my left leg. My right leg was pretty numb too. And my right leg's gone back to normal. My left foot still is pretty much always numb, 
but it starts to tingle like it's asleep when I eat something, when I eat too much sugar. So it's kind of good in a way because I know, like my body's telling me like, hey, you had too much of this, stop that, and then I'll cut away from it. And then when I eat something too fatty, I can feel it right below my belly button. Like it just gets really inflamed and swollen. So it's kind of nice to have two little triggers that tell me like, hey, you had too much of this, too much of that, without having to, you know, use a needle to check my blood sugar or anything like that. Because right. it's been terrible. But I know that if I drink alcohol, it's just going to completely destroy my body. So I can't. So it's been, I've been very fortunate that cannabis has been able to help me out with that to get through all of this. And I would recommend that to anybody who likes drinking to just try edibles. You know, if you like smoking, do that. Like there's so many different ways you can kind of mellow yourself out and enjoy a night, you know, without drinking. And, and if you're, you know, I wish I could go back a few years, have my pancreas back so I could have, you know, a shot of whiskey and take an edible and mix the two together and have a great time. <laughs> but I can't anymore. So I just, I take what I can. And every now and again, I treat myself, um, you know, fortunately, the harder I work out, the better my body handles fatty foods and sugary foods. So the more right. so it really has worked out well, getting me back into better shape, you know, it's and, like you're being forced to be healthy. It really is, which in a way has helped me get back into wrestling too, because I'd given up on wrestling at, at a certain point when I was drinking heavily and eating so much because I just was like, I'm never going to be healthy. So what's the point of even trying? And now it's like, well, I have to do it. You know, my body feels really good. My flexibility is the best it's ever been. So I'm feeling great. Um, so I'm not completely disappointed in that, but it, it does suck, you know, on my birthday to not be able to just gorge myself and go to a buffet or something like that. <laughs> but ultimately I'll probably end up living a lot longer than I would have if I just continued on the way that I was going. So right. in a way it's been a blessing that it happened the way it did because I would have ended up, it would have ended up happening anyway with how much stuff I was putting in my body and how little I was taking care of myself. Well, I mean, all that's awesome to hear, man, because more so than anything else, yeah, I'll be very happy to see you in a ring, hopefully sooner than later. But more importantly than that, it's just seeing that you're here with us. You know, uh, there's too many people that uh, that we've lost along the way, that you've lost along the way, that I've lost along the way. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think I can speak for everyone when we're glad that you're still here. Um, I do have links on the on the description of the, uh, the YouTube channel for your Pro Wrestling Tea Store your Facebook page, your Instagram, your Twitter. Uh, I even have links to YouTube matches. And uh, even times we've talked about you on AlliancedashWrestling.com, you can just follow any of those links to find everything you want to know about Tommy. But is there anything else you want to push? What matches are coming up next? Where can folks come to see you wrestle? Uh, right now, July 16th, SoCal Pro and Vista. I've got that posted on my Facebook page. Like I said, every all my other bookings, I don't have flyers or dates yet on everything. Um, so I'll get those posted up when they're ready. But July 16th, four-way ladder match. Myself, Ricky Mandel, Mr. Impressive, and uh, Infernal Dragon. Um, winner gets a, basically a shot at the SoCal Pro Heavyweight Championship after. It's essentially a money in the bank type match. Um, it's building off of the fact that I threw Mr. Impressive out of the SoCal Pro Rumble and referees didn't see it and he came back in and all that chicanery. So <laughs> that's going on. You know, it, that's going to be a great show. Uh, it's actually funny you brought up my Pro Wrestling T-Store. I set that up like a week before I stopped wrestling and have never advertised. I've sold one shirt ever on there and it was to Mike Camden randomly like two years <laughs> after the fact. So I need to update that. So I appreciate you bringing that up because I need to send them the new designs. Got the new shirt right here. Yeah, man. All shows that I'm on. Um, 
follow me on my Facebook, Twitter. I think my uh, Twitter is going to, they're probably going to be changing the handle. So I'll reach out to people when I do it. Cause I think right now it's Thomas Wilson underscore 82 on everything. Yes. Um, I got really formal when I got out of wrestling and I've been getting behind on, I'm not good at social media and this technology stuff. I was stressing my mind out trying to get this zoom thing to work because it wasn't working on my phone. And fortunately we had Wi-Fi at the gym today and I was able to get it loaded up on my computer because it was scared. me. I was like, Oh man, I can't cancel my first podcast. <laughs> I'd be well, if if it but, happened, we'd, we'd, we'd figure it out for another time, yeah. but I am glad that you're here, man. Tell Thank Jeff you. I said hi and, and thanks for, uh, allowing you to, to talk at his gym to me and yeah. uh, we're, we're going to end it here, but uh, I do appreciate you taking the time, uh, the transparency, uh, you know, I know that it's not easy to come out and talk about these things, but uh, you know, I, I think you're going to help a lot of people when they hear your story. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's kind of the goal in all this is just to wrestle as much as I can and see if we can make some people smile. Cause that's really all this is about at this point. And uh, I spent so much of my time as a heel. It's going to be fun to actually have people like me for once. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully the fans will like me and the, and the wrestlers in the back will like me a little bit more this time around too. Um, I really hope this ends up being a really long run. I really hope this works out. I, I'd love a shot at that 10 pound of golds with Trevor Murdoch sometime soon. If my body's getting going, well, uh... We, so, we will certainly uh, manifest that into existence. I would love to manifest that into existence. I'll be calling Billy Corgan or something and figuring that out. I just I ran into Dave Marquez and Rick Bassman at the Whiskey a couple of weeks ago when Jeff Hardy and Frankie Gazarian were performing. So I was already dropping hits on Todd Kennelly about getting me back into Hollywood nice. and doing all that. So hopefully things will be coming. But I do right now I'm taking it slow. I don't want to push my body too hard. I mean, I still got – I still – have some work to do physically just to get back into the best shape that I can be in so that I can put on the matches that I want to put on for the rest of my career and hopefully finish it out, you know, and maybe have a nice 30 year run down here and be like Jerry Lawler wrestling into my seventies. There you go, man. But one, one day at a time, one day at a time. Well, thank you, Jake, for having me on. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this. The pleasure is all mine, man. Do appreciate you and uh, you, you be good. And we'll, uh, we'll see you at the matches real soon. All right, man. Sounds good. Take care. Have a good one. Thanks for joining the stream. This has been a presentation of Alliance-Wrestling.com. We genuinely appreciate your support. Would you consider subscribing so you'll never miss a future episode? I'd also like to remind you we do a live stream every Tuesday at 5 p.m. before NWA Power. You can find us on social media at The Alliance Blog. And until next time, we are The Alliance.